This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. For more books from Gary North that are free and downloadable on PDF format, please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks. The title of this book is Millennialism and Social Theory, published by Institute for Christian Economics, copyright Gary North, 1990. Chapter 9, The Sociology of Suffering And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief, as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat? But I am among you as he that serveth. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Luke twenty-two, twenty-four to 30 Before we get to a more detailed consideration of this passage, let me note briefly that the Lord's Supper is a sacrament, meaning it is a God-authorized means of God's imposing his negative sanctions in history. Quote, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 11, 29-30 The Protestant Church does not really believe this, a testimony to its commitment to philosophical nominalism. The sacrament as a memorial and nothing more, surely not a judicially significant ritual. This sacrament is not taken very seriously as a means of bringing God's judicial sanctions in history. Neither, for that matter, are the imprecatory psalms taken seriously as the church's means of bringing God's negative sanctions in society. So thoroughly has nominalism corrupted the church that its spokesmen no longer recognize the church as an agent lawfully authorized to invoke God's direct negative sanctions. This means that the church in the New Covenant era is no longer seen as the agent authorized by God to bring his covenant lawsuit against covenant breakers in history, unless the lawsuit is redefined, stripped of all suggestion of God's historical sanctions. This is exactly what amillennial theology does. In the previous chapter, I argued that God's predictable negative sanctions in history are an inescapable concept. It is never a question of God's predictable historical sanctions versus no sanctions. The question, rather, is this. Against whom will God's negative sanctions be predictably imposed? Covenant keepers or covenant breakers? There can be no neutrality. The amillennialist and the premillennialist both insist that prior to the next prophesied eschatological discontinuity, which they insist is Christ's second coming or the rapture, God's negative sanctions will be imposed either equally against covenant keepers and covenant breakers, Klein's random news, or progressively against covenant keepers, with covenant breakers acting as God's appointed agents. Van Til's bad news. The familiar denial of God's predictable negative sanctions in history is in fact an affirmation of the inevitability of his negative sanctions against the church, from Pentecost to the bodily return of Christ in power and glory. The postmillennialist, in sharp contrast, denies that covenant keepers will be the primary targets of God's negative sanctions throughout history. He argues that the message of the Bible is covenantal. Faithfulness brings God's blessings, while rebellion brings God's curses. Deuteronomy 28. This is the message of the Old Testament prophets. They brought covenant lawsuits against Israel and Judah, judicially calling all covenant breakers back to covenantal faithfulness and threatening them with direct, culture-wide negative sanctions if they refused. Furthermore, in a shocking disregard of the non-theonomists' principle that only ancient Israel was under the judicial requirements of God's covenant, Jonah was sent to Nineveh to announce the same message. In forty days God would bring his sanctions against them. Jonah, initially acting in a non-theonomic fashion, remained faithful to his principle that God was not really interested in bringing Nineveh under the terms of his covenant. He steadfastly refused to bring this covenant lawsuit against Nineveh, and he suffered an unpleasant three-day experience as a result of this refusal. 
he was given time to rethink his position, which he did, becoming theonomic. He then was given another opportunity to prosecute God's lawsuit, which turned out to be successful, unique in the Old Covenant era. What if I were to come to you and try to recruit you to a difficult missionary field, namely the city of Sodom? No, I didn't mean San Francisco. I mean the original city. I would then tell you that in fact the whole world is Sodom, or will progressively become so in the future. You are being asked to spend your life there, just as Lot spent his days there, vexed. I assure you that no angels will come to lead you out. There will be no widespread conversion of the city either, not in your lifetime or in anyone else's lifetime. There will be no fiery judgment until the last day, and I refuse to tell you when that will be. The best news I can tell you about your assignment, indeed the only good news, is that your wife will not be under any risk whatsoever of being turned to salt. I then assure you that this program is called a victory assignment, part of a missionary program known as Realized Eschatology. What would you think of my recruiting strategy? You would probably regard me as either a madman or a Calvinistic seminary professor. A Covenant Lawsuit Without God's Historical Sanctions The amillennialist, realized millennialist, insists that it is illegitimate to appeal to the Old Testament in search of a message of visible historical covenantal faithfulness on God's part. Amillennialists understand what the Old Testament says, but they are compelled by their eschatology to deny that we should accept the Old Testament's covenantal message at face value. They contrast the New Testament's supposed message of humiliation and exile for the Church with the Old Testament's far more straightforward message of covenantal predictability. Writes Richard Gaffin, Professor of Systematic Theology at Westminster Seminary, Quote, Briefly, the basic issue is this. Is the New Testament to be allowed to interpret the Old as the best, most reliable interpretive tradition in the history of the Church, and certainly the Reformed tradition has always insisted? Or, alternatively, will the Old Testament, particularly prophecies like Isaiah 32, 1-8, and 65, 17-25, become the hermeneutical fulcrum? End quote. Gaffin knows where the soft underbelly of amillennialism is. He never attempts to explain this pair of problem passages. He just presumes them away. We need to review them, although I have already commented on them in chapter 5. Quote, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment, and a man shall be as an hiding place from the wind, and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. And the eyes of them that see shall not be dim, and the ears of them that hear shall hearken. The heart also of the rash shall understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammerers shall be ready to speak plainly. The vile person shall be no more called liberal, nor the churl said to be bountiful. For the vile person will speak villainy, and his heart will work iniquity, to practice hypocrisy and to utter error against the Lord, to make empty the soul of the hungry, and he, he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. The instruments also of the churl are evil. He deviseth wicked devices to destroy the poor with lying words even when the needy speaketh right. But the liberal deviseth liberal things, and by liberal things shall he stand. Isaiah 32, 1-8 For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. But he, but be ye glad, and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old, but the sinner, being an hundred years old, shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people." And mine elect shall enjoy long the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble. For they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that when before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. 
The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. Isaiah 65:17-25. The latter is the passage that so confounded Professor Hokema. It is the unanswerable passage in the Bible for the amillennialist. So Professor Gaffin, like the vast majority of his eschatological colleagues, refuses to comment on it. They know how bad his attempted exposition made Professor Hokema look, and they do not wish to experience similar public humiliation. Perhaps some energetic, tuition-paying student will ask Dr. Gaffin to explain either or both of these passages in class someday. I hope so. I hope he sends me a copy of the answer. But what of his initial presupposition that the New Testament teaches suffering and cultural defeat for the prosecutors of God's covenant lawsuit, the gospel of Jesus Christ, throughout history? Can this claim be substantiated exegetically? No. But it has been repeated so often in the 20th century that most Christians probably think that it can be or has been substantiated exegetically. Exercising Judgment let us return to Christ's words regarding the Lord's Supper. The covenantal postmillennialist looks in confidence to the primary manifestation of God's blessings in history, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. He makes his case for God's sanctions in the New Covenant era in terms of this extraordinary blessing and this extraordinary power. More than a mere memorial, nominalist Anabaptist, but judicial rather than metaphysical, realist Roman Catholic. The Lord's Supper is proof that God brings his sanctions in history. The postmillennialist then appeals to Christ's words in Luke 22 that link the Lord's Supper to judicial rule in history. Christ's words in Luke regarding the Lord's Supper appear in no church liturgy as far as I know. I have never heard any reference to this passage prior to taking communion. We are usually told to do this in remembrance of him, but not in expectation of exercising judgment against his enemies as agents of his kingdom. Yet the message that Christ gave to his disciples in Luke 22 was certainly consistent with his entire ministry. First, it presents the contrast between the basis of authority wielded by covenant breakers and covenant keepers, power versus service. We are not to rule as the Gentiles do. Jesus' ministry was grounded in the ultimate service, his death for his friends. Quote, Greater love hath no man than this, that the man lay down his life for his friends. Unquote. John 15.13 For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Unquote. Romans 5.7-8 Second, his appointment of them as rulers of his kingdom, even as, re as he received such an appointment from his father, Third, the connecting of Holy Communion with Jesus' rulership in history. Quote, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. End quote. This reference to rulership has to be historical. The twelve tribes of Israel were still a political unit. The church would soon be persecuted by Israel. Jesus had warned them, quote, But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils. And in the synagogues ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand when ye, what ye shall speak, neither do ye prepare, premeditate. But whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye. For it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Mark thirteen nine to 11 there would come a time of suffering under the synagogue of Satan. A generation later, John was instructed by God to write this to the church of Smyrna, quote, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation those days. Be thou faithful unto the death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Revelation 2, 9-10 Ten days of tribulation, 
and even the possibility of death, but they had God's assurance of victory. But would this mean victory in history? For those who would survive the persecution as well as victory in heaven for those who would die? Yes. The book of Revelation presented the church with a promise from God. The persecution of the church under Israel would soon end, when Israel would be brought under final judgment nationally. That event took place within a matter of months. Thus the period of prophesied persecution in John's day was short. Then came God's predicted negative cultural-wide sanctions against Old Covenant Israel, the Great Tribulation. There will be persecution of Christians, but the end result is the destruction of evildoers. They persecute us, but in doing so, they grow progressively deceived and progressively impotent. Now as Jannes and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs was also. But thou hast fully known me my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Second Timothy 3, 8-13 Representation In what way did the disciples judge Israel in history? By representing God and Christ in history. Persecution first, Jesus and John warned, then the godly exercise of righteous judgment. In this case, the church was spared God's negative sanctions. The church survived, and by surviving, exercised judgment against Old Covenant Israel. Just as Lot brought judgment against Sodom by surviving, just as Moses brought judgment against Egypt in the Red Sea by surviving, just as Daniel brought judgment against Babylon on that final night by surviving, so does the Church of Jesus Christ bring judgment against the false kingdoms of this world by surviving. The Church announces God's covenant lawsuit, and then it awaits God's negative sanctions against that society which refuses to repent. But what about Mark 13.10? And the gospel must first be published among all nations. This has to happen in the days of the looming persecution. Until this kingdom program is fulfilled, we are still in the era of persecution, eschatologically speaking. Isn't this fulfillment still in the future? Not according to Paul's interpretation, the church of his day, quote, If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, end quote. Colossians 1.23 Which was preached. His words could not be any plainer. Paul's words are no doubt figurative. They refer to a representative hearing, quote, the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, end quote. No one takes all of his words literally, i.e., every creature under heaven, bugs, mice, etc., most theologians choose the safer path, to ignore the verse. But however interpreted, Paul made it clear that these words of Christ had already been fulfilled in Paul's day. Quote, and the gospel must first be published among all nations. End quote. All of these prophecies were fulfilled in A.D. 71. The looming persecution, the preaching of the gospel to the whole world, the delivery of the disciples before judges, and their sitting in final judgment over Old Covenant Israel. Their sitting in judgment over Israel was fulfilled representatively, yet no less definitively, for Old Covenant Israel is no more. My conclusion is this. While there can be, and is, persecution in this life, it is no more of an eschatological certitude that we shall be persecuted in the future than that God will put his words in our mouths when we are delivered up before judges. Persecution of the church by covenant breakers is no more assured eschatologically in the future than the Great Tribulation is, and the Great Tribulation is behind us. I doubt that Gaffin believes that we can wait on God to put words in our mouths rather than hire defense attorneys. I presume that he would admit that this prophecy applied only to the transition era between Pentecost and the fall of Jerusalem. But persecution of Christians? 
This is supposedly a category of Christian existence, an eschatological imperative. And if he follows Van Til, progressive persecution is eschatologically inevitable. I prefer progressive sanctification to progressive persecution. Progressive Sanctification Because this doctrine is so often ignored by Christians, especially those few who bother to comment on the covenantal meaning of New Covenant history, I need to remind the reader that one more time of the biblical doctrine of sanctification. God grants the perfect humanity of Christ to each individual convert to saving faith in Christ. This takes place at the point of his or her conversion. Subsequently, this implicit, definitive moral perfection is to be worked out in history. We are to strive for the mark. We are to run the good race. Strive to win it, by the way, not in hope of a covenantal tie, i.e. pluralism. We are to imitate Christ's perfect humanity, though, of course, not his divinity, which is an incommunicable attribute. The doctrine of definitive sanctification taken by itself would mean that an individual is perfect. Certain perfectionist sects and cults have taught this, but this is clearly not Christian orthodoxy. Quote, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. End quote. John 1.8 On the other hand, if progressive sanctification is not balanced by the doctrine of definitive sanctification as a pure gift of God, then it would appear as though man can save himself by his own efforts, i.e., that he is not the recipient of God's grace. It would also leave him without permanent standards. We need both doctrines. It is my argument in this study and in my book, Dominion and Common Grace, that these same dual concepts of definitive and progressive sanctification apply to corporate groups, especially covenantal associations, and above all, the Church. Thus, the fact that the Church has been definitively granted Christ's moral perfection does not deny the possibility and moral necessity of its progressive sanctification in history. Similarly, the fact that there is progressive sanctification in history does not in any way deny the fact of Christ's perfection, which was definitively granted to the Church at the point of its covenant-based creation. This applies also to the family and the state. This simple concept completely baffles Professor Gaffin. He has read Dominion and Common Grace, for he offers a brief, exegetically unsupported sentence criticizing its cover, but, predictably, refuses to refer to its thesis or its documentation, and even this he confines to a footnote. He ignores the book's documentation. It should be noted that in his essay, Against Christian Reconstruction, Gaffin does not once cite any Reconstructionist author in the body of the text, and includes only three brief footnote references, one to the book cover and two to David Chiltern's Paradise Restored. In fact, most of the essays in this compilation are remarkably devoid of actual citations of our writings except Bonson's Theonomy. To say that this is a peculiar way to respond to a movement that has published well over 100 volumes of books and scholarly journals, plus 25 years of newsletters, is to say the least revealing. But, as I always say, you can't beat something with nothing. I think the faculty at Westminster Seminary understands this, so they have avoided direct confrontations with the primary sources of Christian Reconstructionism. Here is Dr. Gaffin's position. Quote, Nothing has been more characteristic of current postmillennialism than its emphasis on the kingship of the ascended Christ. Nothing fires the post-mill vision more than that reality. Yet it is just this reality that postmillennialism effectively compromises and in part even denies. Emphasis on the golden era as being entirely future leaves the unmistakable impression that the Church's present and past is something other than golden, and that so far in its history the Church is less than victorious. End quote. Less than victorious. If what the Church has experienced over the past 1900 years is a victory equal to what the Bible promises for covenantal faithfulness, then I would surely hate to see a defeat. He then insists that, quote, the New Testament, however, will not tolerate such a construction, end quote. What he means is that he will not tolerate such a construction. The New Testament is quite in conformity with such a construction. Quote, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under his him, 
it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15.25-28 This footstool condition of God's enemies is definitive, as Gaffin knows, for he correctly cites Ephesians 1.22, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. But why does he deny the progressive aspect of this definitive victory? Because he rejects the idea of the kingdom's victory in history. He is an amillennialist. Progress in the Creeds If I were to ask Professor Gaffin if he has a great appreciation for the Westminster Confession of Faith, he would tell me that he does. I would then ask him, Do you appreciate it more than the Athanasian Creed or the Nicene Creed? If he says yes, he has just accepted the concept of creedal progress in history. If he says no, he has just submitted his resignation from Westminster Seminary. So, I suppose he would answer that, each has its proper place in the church, as indeed each does. I would hate to have to sing the Westminster Confession of Faith each Sunday morning, the way I sing the Nicene Creed. But if I were to ask him if the Westminster Confession is more theologically rigorous than earlier creeds, he would tell me it is. It was the product of centuries of creedal advance. So, Professor Gaffin, I now ask you this. Can you imagine the possibility that the Westminster Confession will be improved upon as time goes on? Yes? Then are you now ready to begin working on such an improvement? I know I am. But more to the point, do you think such improvements in creedal formulations will parallel and reinforce the maturation of the Church? Finally, will such maturation have positive effects in society? If not, then are you saying that the progress of the Church and the creeds is socially irrelevant? Please be specific. And when you have got your answers ready, don't forget to discuss them with your students. Perhaps some of them may remind you of this assignment periodically. They do pay your salary. Let us continue, this time with the family. The marital vows are definitive. The working out of these vows in the lives of a married couple is progressive. Love, honor, obey, cherish, etc., are we to say that an older couple has in no way matured covenantally since their wedding day? No. But does this in any way denigrate the integrity of those vows? No. This is so clear that even seminary professors ought to be able to understand it. They won't, of course. They acknowledge dual sanctification with respect to the individual Christian. But as soon as you raise the possibility that sanctification in both aspects also applies to institutions, you get a blank stare what we might call blank-stare apologetics. If pressed hard, the professor might respond, I see. He really doesn't, however. Outside the Cloister and the Family Now let us get to the heart of the matter, the world outside the church and the family. Here is where the pietist gags. The pessimillennialist cannot tolerate the suggestion that the same principle of definitive and progressive sanctification applies to the Christian societies, despite the fact that it applies to the church and to the Christian family. What biblical principle do they invoke to pr prove the existence of such an interpretive discontinuity between the world outside the church and family and inside the church and family? None. There is none. They simply refuse to discuss what they have done. They assert, as Gaffin asserts, that any concept of covenantal progress in history outside the church and family is biblically illegitimate. His language is so strong in this regard that he could, he could become as confrontationally rhetorical as I am, if he would just work at it. He has clearly displayed the basic talent. Now he just needs to develop it. Gaffin's problem is that he holds to the theology of Eastern Orthodoxy with respect to history. Moral progress only through suffering. No Calvinist amillennial theologian has articulated this position any more clearly. He has developed an entire worldview based on this presupposition. He calls this his most substantial reservation against postmillennialism. It has taken 17 years of theological pressuring since Rushduni's Institutes of Biblical Law was published to get so forthright a statement out of a Calvinist amillennialist. No one has demonstrated more visibly the accuracy of Rushduni's judgment. 
Amillennialists are premillennialists without earthly hope. Personal moral progress only through suffering. Gaffin calls amillennialism inaugurated eschatology, a variant of realized eschatology. Understand, this is the equivalent of definitive eschatology. There would be nothing wrong with it if it had the necessary complement, progressive eschatology. But he is appalled by the very thought of progressive eschatology, for it would necessarily deny the heart of his ethical system, personal maturation through suffering. We need persecution in history. Quote, The inaugurated eschatology of the New Testament is least of all the basis for triumphalism in the Church, at whatever point prior to Christ's return. Over the interadvental period in its entirety, from beginning to end, a fundamental aspect of the Church's existence is to be suffering with Christ. Nothing the New Testament teaches is more basic to its identity than that. End quote. He cites 2 Corinthians 4.7 But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. This imagery of man as a vessel is familiar in Scripture. Paul uses it in Romans 9. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay, of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Romans 9.20-24 The question is not whether we are vessels. The question is, which vessels get progressively smashed by God in history, the vessels of wrath or the vessels of glory? The answer to this question is biblically clear. And nowhere is it clearer than in Psalm 2, one of the most disconcerting Bible passages for the amillennialists. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, and be instructed, Ye judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Psalm 2 Lest we imagine that this is merely another Old Testament proof text, consider Revelation 2, 26-29. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule over them with a rod of iron. And as the ruler, as the vessels of a potter, shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let him hear indeed. Clay jars, Gavin writes, are believers, quote, in all their mortality and fragility, end quote. Well, so what? What does this professor of systematic theology think covenant breakers are made of? Stainless steel? But, as with every amillennialist, he gets his biblical imagery backwards. He sees the Christians as clay pots and the covenant breakers as rods of iron, from now until doomsday. It is true that the covenant breaker is sometimes employed by God as a rod against us, negative sanctions in history, but never apart from the promise of a future reversal of the sanctioning relationship. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel, and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob, shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God, for through thy people 
Though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption, even determined in the midst of all the land. Therefore thus saith the Lord God of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod, and shall lift up his staff against thee, after the manner of Egypt. For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and mine anger in their destruction. And the Lord of hosts shall stir up a scourge for him according to the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. And as his rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up after the manner of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder, and his yoke from off thy neck. And the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Isaiah 10, 20-27 After the manner of Egypt Every covenant keeper is supposed to remember what happened to Egypt after that nation broke the Israelite vessels. Destruction in history. But such a message of reversed roles of victory, Gavin says, is strictly limited to Old Testament history. It has nothing to do with the history of the church of the resurrected Christ. How do we know this? Because of Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. He then spends several pages explaining Christ's sufferings and his death. He defines Christ's resurrection in terms of his suffering. Here is without a doubt the heart of the amillennial message, a message of incomparable pessimism. Quote, By virtue of reunion with Christ, Paul is saying, The power of Christ's resurrection is realized in the sufferings of the believer. Sharing in Christ's sufferings is the way the church manifests his resurrection power. End quote. Prior to World War II, the great amillennial Dutch theologian Klaas Schilder wrote a trilogy, Christ in his suffering, Christ on trial, and Christ crucified. He needed three more volumes, Christ in the grave, Christ resurrected, and Christ ascended. But there is not much to say about Christ in the grave, and amillennialists get very nervous discussing Christ resurrected, let alone Christ ascended. They interpret the history of the church in terms of Schilder's three volumes. They do not think culturally and socially except in these terms. The Dutch in Kuiper's day and Schilder's day tried to design a Christian culture, but without Old Testament law. World War II and its aftermath ended all such attempts. Schilder's trilogy was resurrected in Van Riesen's Sociology of Suffering. The meek shall inherit the earth, not the wimps. Gaffin rejects triumphalism, as do all amillennialists. It has been absent for generations, but now Christian Reconstructionism has revived it. Reconstructionists expect God's highly divisive historical sanctions. They expect New Covenant history to realize visibly the promise of Old Covenant cu cultural restoration. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries, whither I have driven them in mine anger, and in my fury, and in great wrath. And I will bring them again into this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart, and one way, that they may fear me forever, for the good of them, and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them, to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts." that they shall not depart from me. Yea, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. For thus saith the Lord, Like as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, so will I bring upon them all the good that I have promised them. Jeremiah thirty-two thirty-seven to 42 This is what David taught. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass, and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord, and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, and trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. 
Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked desires to pass, devices to pass. Cease from anger, and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil, for evildoers shall be cut off. But those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plotteth against the just, and gnasheth upon him with his teeth. The Lord shall laugh at him, for he seeth that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn out the sword, and have bent their bow, to cast down the poor and needy, and to slay such as be of upright conversation. Their sword shall enter into their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. A little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholdeth the righteous. The Lord knoweth the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs, and they shall consume, into smoke shall they consume away. The wicked borroweth, and payeth not again. But the righteous showeth mercy and giveth. For such as be blessed of him shall inherit the earth, and they that be cursed of him shall be cut off. Psalm 37, 1-22 This is why the amillennialist has his heart turned against the Old Testament. It allows us to understand the covenantal foundation of Christ's teachings, such as this one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 5 those who are meek before God, and therefore active toward his creation, shall exercise dominion in history if they obey his laws. God's promise of victory to his church is tied to his covenant. This cannot be understood apart from his covenantal sanctions in history, both positive and negative. Resurrection, then crucifixion. Gaffin insists that the Bible's eschatology of victory is an eschatology of suffering. Then he adds what he regards as his coup de grace. Until Jesus comes again, the church wins by losing. He then asks a rhetorical question. Quote, what has happened to this theology of the cross in much of contemporary postmillennialism? I shall provide him with the answer. It has been modified by the theology of resurrection and ascension. Professor Gaffin has managed to reverse the sociological order of events at Calvary. In his Sociology of Suffering, the crucifixion follows Christ's death and resurrection. He argues, as clearly as anyone ever has, that our historical condition is to be crucified with Christ. Resurrection is strictly a post-historical experience. But Gaffin has a problem. Jesus Christ announced the Great Commission only after his resurrection. Gaffin's Sociology of Suffering would reverse Matthew 27 and 28. For Gaffin, the Great Commission is a message of cultural crucifixion. In all honesty, the Roman Catholic crucifix should be Gaffin's symbol of the Great Commission, not the empty cross of Protestantism. The crucifix is appropriate for the Roman Church, which is also amillennial. Those of us who are postmillennial much prefer the symbol of the empty cross. It conforms to our eschatology. So does the empty tomb. Yes, we take up our cross to follow him, but that burden is easy. Matthew 11.30 It is not a burden so crushing that Christians are beaten down historically. Carrying the cross of Christ means extending his kingdom in history, not being pushed out by Satan's leaven. It is Satan's doom in history to suffer progressive frustration, not the church's. It is his representatives who are called upon to suffer as God's kingdom unfolds in history. Christ was nailed to the cross so that Satan could be nailed to the wall. I began this chapter with Luke 22, on the Lord's Supper and our lawful exercise of authority in history. Gaffin also places the Lord's Supper at the heart of his eschatology. Quote, According to Jesus, the church will not have drained the shared cup of his suffering until he returns. End quote. Gaffin's theological problem is not with postmillennialism as such. It is with what Jesus taught about the judicial implications of his supper. He adds this rhetorical question, quote, Is it really overreacting to say that such triumphalism is repugnant to biblical sen sensibilities? End quote. 
Now, there are perfectly good uses for rhetorical questions, even aggressive questions, but there are risks, too. Your target may have an opportunity to respond. He may rework your rhetorical question, changing only one word, making you the target. He may ask, is it really overreacting to say that such masochism is repugnant to biblical sensibilities? Some readers may prefer triumphalism to masochism. Not Gaffin. Quote, Suffering is a function of the futility-decay principle pervasively at work in the creation since the fall. Suffering is everything that pertains to creaturely experience of this death principle. Until then, at Christ's return, the suffering, futility, decay principle in creation remains in force, undiminished, but sure to be overcome. It is an enervating factor that cuts across the Church's existence, including its mission, in its entirety. The notion that this frustration factor will be demonstrably reduced and the Church's suffering service noticeably alleviated and even compensated in a future era before Christ's return is not merely foreign to this passage, it, it trivializes as well as blurs both the present suffering and the future hope, glory. Until his return, the church remains one step behind its exalted Lord. His exaltation means its privileged humiliation. His return, and not before, its exaltation. Christ is now resurrected. The church will continue to be humiliated. Christ has ascended, the church will continue to be crucified. Was Christ's resurrection and ascension historical? Yes, says Orthodox Christianity. Will the church experience a progressive taste of either resurrection or ascension in its effect on culture and history? No, says the amillennialist. The Great Commission is a commission to a millennium of defeat. Understand what this means. Gaffin says it well. The church of Jesus Christ in history remains one step behind the Lord but the Church's experience is humiliation throughout history. So, what does this tell us of Jesus Christ's influence in history, just one step ahead of the Church? Except for saving individual souls, this influence is nil. Zip. Nada. Satan 1000, Christ 0. This is the essence of the amillennial view of history. It reduces covenant theology to pietistic anabaptism. Save souls, not culture. It is premillennialism without earthly hope. Incurable Schizophrenia, or St. Verbiage's Dance Sadly, Gaffin simply could not leave it at this. It was not in him. Having produced a masterpiece of amillennial masochism, he could not resist the lure of the standard Dutch double-talk. He shifts to the familiar language of optimism. In the appropriately titled subsection, quote, The Church in the Wilderness, unquote, he denies that he has proclaimed, quote, an anemic, escapist Christianity of cultural surrender. Without question, the Great Commission continues fully in force, with its full cultural breadth, until Jesus returns. That mandate, then, is bound to have a robust, leavening impact, one that will re redirect every area of life and transform not only individuals, but, through them corporately, as the Church, their cultures. It already has done so and will continue to do so until Jesus comes. End quote. Leaven again. The leaven of victory. The leaven of victory in history. The leaven of victory in culture. But he has already denied this possibility with respect to the general culture. So what does he mean here by culture? He means the institutional church. What this means is this. The only culture that the Great Commission of Christ's Gospel actually leavens in history is the institutional church. It's ghetto time. What, then, is the true history, true meaning of history? We never get a straight answer from the amillennialist. What we get, first, is double talk. Gaffin denies that his view of Christ's kingdom is static. Quote, If, as some charge, this position is staticism, involving a static view of history, so be it but it is not a staticism that eliminates real, meaningful progress in history, quote. Second, we get verbiage. Quote, it is, we may say, the staticism of eschatological dynamism, staticism in the sense of the kingly permanence of the exalted Christ being effectively manifested in its full, diverse, and ultimately incalculable, unpredictable grandeur over the entire inter-advental period from beginning to end. End quote. What does this mean, you ask? It means that Calvinistic amillennialism has no doctrine of historical progress, 
and no doctrine of covenantal cause and effect in history. It means that the covenantal promise of God to enforce his law by means of direct sanctions, Deuteronomy 28, was chronologically limited to the Old Covenant era. And even then, only inside national Israel, except for that one confounding case of Nineveh. It means that Dr. Gaffin is as embarrassed as all other post-pessimillennialists are by the obvious implications of their eschatologies. They do not want to be called cultural defeatists just because they happen to be cultural defeatists. They want to clothe themselves in the optimistic language of post-millennialism. So the amillennialist's strategy is to spray verbiage all over the page. The premillennialist keeps talking about how great it is going to be on the far side of Armageddon. There is another academic strategy, however, to offer no cultural alternative, but criticize the present humanist world order relentlessly. This does not change anything, but at least it allows Christians, in Gavin's words, to get in a few licks. The Consequences of Christ's Resurrection and Ascension For many years I have taunted non-theonomists with this slogan, You can't beat something with nothing. They have said nothing in public in response, but they have not needed to. Their implicit answer is clear. It is based self-consciously on their two or three pessimillennial eschatologies. Quote, With respect to social theory, we know we have nothing culturally to offer. But since God does not really expect the church to defeat anything cultural in history anyway, nothing is all we need. End quote. The more intellectually sophisticated among them have contented themselves with writing critical analyses of modern humanist culture. By implication, they are calling Christians to avoid the pits of Babylon, but calling Christians to, quote, come out from among them, unquote, without also providing at least an outline of a cultural alternative to come into, i.e., to construct, is simply to mimic the fundamentalism of an earlier era. No liquor, no cigarettes, no social dancing, and no movies. It is a scholarly version of fundamentalism's old refrain. We don't smoke, we don't chew, and we don't go with the boys who do. We cannot seriously expect to recruit dedicated, intellectually serious people into full-time Christian service with a worldview that says little more than, we don't go to R-rated movies. So what good are these negative intellectual critiques? They serve as outlets for highly frustrated Christian intellectuals to produce other highly frustrated Christian intellectuals. We can see this dilemma in the publishing career of Herbert Schlossberg. His Idols for Destruction, 1983, is by far the most eloquent criticism of modern humanist thought that anyone has written. Nothing matches it for the number of insights per page. It is like a hoard of gems sewn in a magnificent tapestry. It even has footnotes, bottom-of-the-page notes. Its only de defect is that some of its crucial footnotes are missing. But after five years, its publisher, Thomas Nelson, decided not to reprint it. So, a conservative but non-Christian publisher picked it up, a firm with a vision broader than mere financial profit. The Hermeneutic of Persecution The problem is not with the book. The problem is with its sequel, Altars for Construction. It never got written. I suggested the title to Schlossberg, but he decided instead to begin a long-term research project on the history of the persecution of the Church. This would be a worthy project for a Greek Orthodox scholar. Greek Orthodoxy teaches that maturity comes only through suffering. God gave them into the hands of the Turks to let them test their theology, just as he gave the Russian Orthodox Church into the hands of the Communists. Nevertheless, Schlotzberg's new task is consistent with his amillennialism. What is seldom admitted by amillennialism's adherents is this. Amillennialism is a theology that proclaims personal maturation through suffering, rather than through exercising dominion. It does not have a concept of institutional development. Schlossberg, as an amillennialist, has made a crucially important presupposition, one that governs all amillennial views of church history. Quote, the Bible can be interpreted as a string of God's triumphs disguised as disasters. End quote. We see this principle of the disguised victory illustrated most graphically at the cross. What appeared to be Satan's greatest victory was in fact his judicial seal of doom. But this was true only because of what followed, Christ's bodily resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God in heaven. 
If these historical events had not followed, then the amillennial hermeneutic of persecution would be valid. Had Jesus not risen from the dead in history, Christianity would be a vain faith, as Paul said. We have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. If for if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 15b-17 The reason why the hermeneutic of persecution is a legitimate tool of biblical interpretation for events that took place before the death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is that it is not equally valid as a tool of historical interpretation for events that have taken place after the bodily resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. I shall put it as bluntly as I can. Amillennialism is an eschatology that ignores the theological, intellectual, and social consequences of the fact that both Christ's resurrection and his ascension were events in history. These were trans-historical events, too, but they were events in history. Deny this, and you remove the very heart of Christianity. If Christ did not rise in history, then our faith is vain. Theological liberals, like the Pharisees before them, fully understand this. They deny the historicity of Christ's resurrection in their attempt to destroy the church. They are following the rival Great Commission of the Enemies of Christ, which is recorded in the text of Matthew's Gospel immediately prior to Jesus' issuing of his Great Commission to the church. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews to this day. Matthew twenty-eight eleven to 15 Bible-believing Christians must publicly affirm the reality of the bodily resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ in history. This means that Christians must also affirm the consequences of both the resurrection and the ascension, including their social and cultural consequences. Amillennialism's hermeneutic of persecution is therefore not valid as a primary classification device to evaluate the entire work of the Church in history. There is more to the progress of the Church in history than its persecution. In short, there is more to Christianity's victory in history than its hypothetical cultural defeat in history. But this is what amillennialism explicitly and self-consciously denies. It proclaims cultural defeat. Schlossberg understands that there has to be more to the interpretation of history. But as an amillennialist and a non-theonomist, he does not speculate in public about what this might be. He writes, quote, We need a theological interpretation of disaster. End quote. The Church has needed this for many centuries. So, so have the humanists. The devastating Lisbon earthquake of 1755 shook not just the foundations of Lisbon, it shook the foundations of Enlightenment optimism. So have major catastrophes ever since. If man is essentially good, then why do such terrible things happen to large numbers of us? What the Bible has given us is a covenantal theory of disaster. Men will be called to account in history by God whenever they systematically refuse to obey his Bible-revealed laws. But this is too much to swallow for millions of Christians and billions of non-Christians who agree on one thing. God's Bible-revealed laws for society are null and void today. So are his sanctions. Conclusion Gaffin ends his essay with a footnote, one which makes a very important point, though astoundingly misleading. He argues that the final judgment is part of history. Now, nothing could be farther from the accepted use of language. The final judgment is the consummation of history, a radical, discontinuous event that cannot be accelerated or retarded by any normal continuous actions by man in history. It is exclusively God's intervention into the historical process that will abolish the historical process. Quote, the enemy that sowed them is the devil, the harvest at the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. End quote. Matthew thirteen, thirty-nine to 40 This is the end of, not an aspect of, the historical process. 
He offers his theory of why people become premillennialists and postmillennialists. They seek evidence of God's sanctions in history. I believe he is correct. This is surely what this book is all about. But this search, in Gavin's eyes, is a major misunderstanding of the Bible. He pulls no punches. I really do appreciate his vitriolic, confrontational style, so unlike the normal academic discourse of theologians, it helps to keep the readers awake. My only regret is that he puts his this gem in a footnote. Vitriol ought to be right up there in the middle of the text, where it belongs. As I said before, Gaffin has the polemical gift. My only disappointment is his use of a wishy-washy academic frame phrase, it seems. Quote, My surmise is that, for many, a significant factor disposing them toward either a pre-mill or a post-mill position stems from etherealized, even insipid, less-than-biblical understandings of the eternal state. Such rarefied, colorless conceptions give rise to the conviction, compounded by a missing or inadequate awareness of the realized eschatology taught in Scripture, that eventually God must somehow get in his licks and settle things in history as distinct from eternity. But what is the eternal order other than the consummation of history, the historical process, come to its final fruition? The new heavens and earth, inaugurated at Christ's return, will be the climactic vindication of God's covenant, and so, his final historical triumph, the ultimate realization of his purposes for the original creation, forfeited by the first Adam and secured by the last. Inherent in both a post-mill and a pre-mill outlook, it seems, is the tendency, at least, toward an unbiblical, certainly an unreformed, separation or even polarization of creation and redemption eschatology. The new heavens and new earth are exclusively future, he insists, contrary to Isaiah 65, 17-23. Professor Gaffin preaches a realized eschatology, except when it actually comes to real, realized eschatology. Then he preaches deferred eschatology, victory beyond history. He tells us that Jesus secured what Adam forfeited. Indeed, Christ regained title to the whole world. Adam had the legal authorization from God to leave an inheritance to his heirs. So does Jesus. But amillennialists insist that Jesus merely secured title. Title will not be transferred to his people progressively in history. Again, this is definitivism apart from progressivism. It is the fundamental theological error of all amillennialism. It has no vision of the progressive realization of Christ's definitive conquest in history. Christ's conquest in history is assumed to be based exclusively on power, not on covenantal faithfulness, and it will be achieved only ultimately, i.e. outside of history, in heaven, church triumphant, and at the end of history, church resurrected. It supposedly has nothing to do with the church militant, history. In amillennialism, there is no progressive kingdom development in history toward the present triumphant condition of the church in heaven. While our citizenship is in heaven, this heavenly passport progressively entitles us only to the kinds of rights and benefits given to someone in Iraq who holds an Israeli passport. This defeatist outlook on church history is equally true of premillennialism. The result is predictable. The church militant has become, in our day, the church wimpotent. If this is realized eschatology, I'd prefer another option. So would a lot of other Christians, which is why Calvinistic amillennialism cannot recruit and keep the brighter, more activist students. Gaffin tells his disciples that they, like the church, have a lifetime of frustration ahead of them. This comforts the pietists among them, but it drives the activists in the direction of covenantal postmillennialism, which offers a consistent and Bible-based alternative. Gaffin's amillennialism of pre-1940 Holland cannot compete effectively against it. Westminster Seminary and Reformed Presbyterian in general need to return to the optimistic vision presented by J. Gresham Macon in 1932, in the midst of his courageous battle against theological liberalism in the Northern Presbyterian Church. As a post-millennialist of the Princeton Seminary variety, he believed in a coming discontinuity, a burst of new power. Quote, we who are reckoned as conservatives in theology are seriously misrepresented if we are regarded as men who are holding desperately to something that is old merely because it is old 
and are inhospitable to new truths. On the contrary, we welcome new discoveries with all our heart, and we are looking in the church not merely for a continuation of conditions that now exist, but for a burst of new power. My hope is that new power is greatly quickened by contact with the students of Westminster Seminary. There, it seems to me, we have an atmosphere that is truly electric. It would not be surprising if some of these men might become the instruments, by God's grace, of lifting preaching out of the sad rut into which it has fallen, and of making it powerful again for the salvation of men. End quote. Sadly, he failed to articulate his eschatology and his successors at Westminster abandoned it. The amillennialism of Dutch Calvinism soon triumphed at Westminster. His academic and ecclesiastical successors have had no faith in the burst of new power that he dreamed of. In this sense, it is the Christian Reconstruction Movement that is the spiritual heir of Machen. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.